Hi, thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Please be seated. I want to thank the worship team this morning. I love those songs. Really appreciated that little bit of blues this morning. I know Fran appreciates singing the blues. She lives with me, so she's got lots of practice on that. And, um, and the last song here again, too, just sets us up for a lot of where we're going to go, or some, definitely some parts of where we're going to go this morning, so uh, that's awesome. We are, we are at our last uh, message in our series on Hebrews, and I got to say, honestly, I'm, I'm just a little bit disappointed uh, by that. I have loved going through Hebrews, and it has been so good for me just to um, work with God through this, and as he's spoken into my life, and, and um, I trust that it's been of consequence and significance for you, of benefit, and if it hasn't been, well, thanks for at least indulging me so that I could enjoy that. Um, last week, you'll remember if you were here or if you were able to catch it online, we didn't make it all the way through chapter 12. And so this morning, we've got a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to try and drop back into chapter 12 and then work our way all the way through to the end of chapter 13, which will bring us to the end of the book. And um, so that's a, that's a fair bit of, of stuff to cover. And so um, I'm going to ask for your indulgence. I'm going to attack that. I'm going to tackle it in sort of an un- unorthodox way. I'm going to begin in chapter 12, and then I'm going to drop into chapter 13, and then we're going to come back to the end of chapter 12 and work through the last verses there. So that's kind of what's going on. And most of you would be familiar, you've caught on by now, that the author, as he's been going through the book, alternates between encouragement and then um, warning uh, and, and, and then also uh, instruction. And so he's, he's cycling through these things. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to deal with some of the instruction that we didn't catch last week in chapter 12. Then I'm going to move on to some of the instruction in chapter 13. And then we're going to come back to some encouragement morning in chapter 12 again at the end. So would you just one more time, would you bow with me? And let's ask God once more to speak to us this morning. Father, as we come now to your word to us in Hebrews for the last time for a while, Father, I again would ask that you would help us by your spirit to do justice to it today. That as you speak to us through your word this morning, that we would hear God. That we would be able to take your word, that we would be able to apply it to our lives, that we would be different people for having spent this time in the end of chapter 12 and then into 13 this morning. So to that end, God, I ask these things all for the sake of your Son, and in his name I pray. Amen. All right. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, please turn with me, chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to pick it up at verse 14. I unfortunately don't have the opportunity to drop back into some of the thoughts on discipline and, and 
delve into that a little bit further. Uh, so I'm going to leave it where we left it last week, and we'll pick it up in, ch- in verse 14, and we'll tackle verse 14 to 17. So Hebrews 12, verses 14 to 17. Make every effort, the author says, to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Bitter root here can be understood possibly as a person or persons, but more likely as sin, some form of sin growing up within the midst of that body, within the midst of that group uh, that the author is speaking to, and so as for us as well, that we have to be careful then that no bitter root, as we would see that referred to in the Old Testament, no sin, no, no problem would grow up in our midst that would cause us trouble. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Esau would have been, been understood to this Jewish audience, this primarily Jewish audience that the, the writer is writing to, and so we need to understand it as well. They would have understood Esau as godless. All right, He sold out his birthright. He sold out the, the, the significance of his family's faith for the material and the sensual. He traded it for a meal. And so it was understood then that he had no sort of interest in God by that. That he wasn't interested in godly things. He was interested in the here and now. He was interested in the, in the sensual, in the material things of life. And so the author warns us, don't be like Esau. Don't, don't go down that road. And right at the end there, where he says he could not change what he has done, there's evidence for that to be translated as he could not find within himself, a way to repent. Which is to say, the author tags on this little thing here about apostasy again. Be really careful, everyone. Don't find yourself going down this road where you forfeit what God wants to give you, the gift that He's given you in Christ. Because at some point, you will get too far where you won't even be able to find your way back. Where you won't be able to change your thinking where you won't be able to make that adjustment. You'll dig in your heels and you'll just play it out, come what may. So the author says, don't, don't let that happen. And then flip with me on to chapter 13 where the author continues with some more instruction for us. And this morning, as we hit chapter 13, these are all pretty much straightforward. These things are fairly easy to to follow and understand. So we're not going to spend a whole bunch of time on them. But they deserve noting. And they'll uh, they'll sort of come up again at the end of the message. So keep them in mind. And recognize here too that as we hit chapter 13, this this isn't an exhaustive list. These are just some things that the author has impressed upon him to write to this audience then and us as well today. So let's carry on. Chapter 13, verse 1. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. This isn't just sort of an idle idea. It's not just sort of touchy-feely motherhood and apple pie. 
Love one another as brothers and sisters. He means it. Get at it. Love one another as brothers and sisters. Verse 2, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Don't be stingy. And don't just circle the wagons and circulate and operate with those that you know. Watch for others around you that you can be hospitable to. Continue, verse 3, to remember those in prison as, you, as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. The audience that he was speaking to, there's evidence that there was something going on. There was some persecution that was going on at some point in their lives, possibly even right then. But if not then, beforehand, where some of them had been imprisoned. So that might not be our lot this morning. It could soon be our lot, at least for a pastor near you, um, in the future, in the days coming ahead, where they'll be imprisoned. And so he says here, in that case, in that situation, or wherever anyone has been mistreated, then come alongside them. Care for them as if it was you that was there in their shoes. Verse 4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the, and the sexually immoral. We have watered down sexual sin in our world today. We do not believe that it has consequence. We don't think that it is significant, but we see it so much more differently in God's eyes when we see it from His perspective. It is a sacred thing. And we need to keep it pure. We can't be lackadaisical or laissez-faire when it comes to our sexual lives. There's no room there for immorality. And he reminds us that God will judge in those circumstances. So be careful. Verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? We just sang about that. And this morning, whether it's in our, our financial world, our financial lives, whether it's to do with this, and I wish we could just spend an area that we could just delve into again so deeply this morning in cash today. And it's, that's, we are distracted by that as we're full from the things of God. We miss, and as you turn to Him, and as we follow Him. Remember your leaders who spoke the Word of God to you. Well, that speaks for itself. Verse 9, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Today, man, again, we get on that social media we read the craziest, wacky, doodle things out there. And we swallow it hook, line, and sinker. And I'll tell you what, we can dress a lot of junk up so that it sounds nice. But if it doesn't stand to what Scripture says, dismiss it, junk it, throw it out. And which begs then in this, in, in this verse that we need to know what's wacky doodle by virtue of knowing what is the deal. So we've got to get into our Bibles. We've got to know what teaching is real so that we can identify what is strange and dismiss that. Verse 13, let us then go to Him outside the camp, Him being Jesus, bearing the disgrace He bore. 
For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Christ was rejected in the very temple in the middle of the city in which He ministered. Where the people were called to find God, Jesus was rejected by the priest, the chief priest and everyone. And He was made to walk outside the city and die on a cross for our sins, having been rejected by the religious establishment, and everyone else. This morning, the author reminds us that we're to walk outside the camp with Christ as well. That we're going to endure the rejection of those that say that they're religious, those that say that they know God, and the rest of the world as well. That that is going to be our lot. That we need to be ready for that. That we need to walk outside with Christ and be ready to shoulder that burden. Bear that with Him. Because we're not here for the things of this world. We're here waiting and looking forward to the eternal city that will soon be ours. Verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that openly profess His name. Whatever our lot is today, we can be thankful to God for Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And that has to be close to our lips all the time. That's not something that we bury. That's not something that we keep in the back, in the trunk, in the closet, or whatever. That's something that we carry with us and we bear witness to it all the time, any time, every time that we get an opportunity. And do not forget, verse 16, to do good and to share with others for, what, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Again, we're reminded that as we make a decision to follow Christ, that our lives are no longer our own. That we're not living for you and me and myself, and I. Sorry, we are living for you. I'm not living for me, myself, and I. We're living for those around us now. We're living for those that know Christ. We're living for those that don't know Christ. And we do good for them. We sacrifice for them. And with those sacrifices, then God is pleased. Verse 17, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. I can say this. This morning, I'm thankful for our elders. I watch them. I see them. They care about you. They care about this church. They are interested in your well-being. They operate with that in mind. So we do well then to honor them. Give them our confidence. Submit to their authority. As we continue to try and navigate together towards being as 
good a testimony as possible to the world around us and as beneficial as possible in equipping everyone to the work of the ministry that we're called to in Christ Jesus. Lastly, verse 18, the author says, pray for us, pray for him especially. We're to pray for one another. In our days, we're to be watching, we're to be thinking of others around us again and praying for them. I've said it before, I'll say it again, I don't believe that we understand nearly the capital that we have in prayer. What is available to us in prayer, I don't believe that we have come close to understanding. And if we did, we would leverage it, we would exercise it even more. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Let's get at it. Let's be effective. Each one of us, as we have the potential that God has given us. Don't squander it. Let's use it. Don't miss it. You'll lose it. These then characterize you and I, each followers of Jesus Christ. We listen, if you will. He's not offering it only in argument. He's been arguing for his audience all the way along that this new covenant that Christ represents is better than the old covenant, their old covenant of the law that they had been grown, raised in, that they'd grown up in. And he's been arguing for the sake of the new covenant, covenant being superior over the old covenant. And that exists here too, but also now he offers us this comparison as encouragement to each one of us as he takes the, the covenants and he looks forward to them in the future. To the future, particularly of the new covenant, if you will. In short, we see here the author contrasts the covenants in these ways. The old covenant came through Moses, where again, we see the new covenant comes through Jesus. Moses being an inferior mediator, Jesus being the superior mediator. The old covenant was earthly and temporal, whereas the new covenant now we see as celestial and permanent. The old covenant was impersonal, whereas the new covenant now is personal. It's for you. And lastly, the old covenant arrived with fear, whereas the new covenant comes to us with joy. Follow along with me. Chapter 12, verse 18 to 21. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. The author here begins in the negative. And by doing that, then he points out for us, he underlines for us that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is now inferior. 
comes to us and says, you have not come. You have not come. Before they had, had come to that covenant, but no longer. That one is now passé. It is antiquated. It is old. It has been usurped by the new covenant. So we see right off the hop that as he refers to the old covenant that it is inferior to the new covenant. He says, he goes on, he says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. And therein he points out the physical. He's talking about the temporal. That is, we talk about coming to a mountain, specifically Mount Sinai, then that's earthly. That's something that is going to pass away. It is limited. It's not sufficient. So we understand that. And he goes on. He says that this, mer- this mountain that was burning with fire, and if they hadn't already, now his, his readers have caught up, and we should as well, that he is talking about specifically when the old covenant was inaugurated on Mount Sinai. And his readers would remember, and we can go back and see it. It's, that's highlighted for us in, in Exodus verse, uh, chapter 19, verses 16 to 19, and then again in Exodus 20, verses 18 to 21. His Jewish audience then would have been well acquainted, well familiar with that account that that is outlined there. They would have been up to speed on that. And they would have recognized the soberness and the intimidation that came with the unveiling, the inauguration of the Old Covenant. In reflecting back to that event, they would have understood the fear and the trepidation that would have been the the experience of the people that were present then. You'll remember, in those accounts we see that the, um, the people are assembled well back from even the base of the mountain because nothing could touch the mountain F.F. Bruce says the mountain was so charged with the holiness of God that you couldn't approach it for fear for your life. That our failings, that our sin, our inadequacy would have been consumed by God if we had ventured so close as to touch it. They would have remembered that at that time smoke covered the mountain as God descended on it in fire. And they would have recalled that as then God spoke to the people then that the earth shook at the sound of His voice. We come to that and we see that from the outside. We look at it as an observer from the outside. And we go, well, that's interesting. That's amazing. Wow. But it pictures yourself there. Put yourself in the shoes of the people as you experience that. Have you been in a storm before where you've looked at it and you went, whoa, 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 this is, this, is, this is serious. This is bigger than I'm happy about. This is more than I'm comfortable with. I've been there. 
I've been in a couple of situations where I've looked around and I've thought to myself, well, dude, this could be it. Like, I mean, this has the power, this is the potential to snuff you out. But I'll tell you what, I've never been in a situation like that. I've never been in a situation where fire has come down from heaven, a smoke has consumed a mountain. And where, as a voice, the voice of God audibly spoke that the ground shook. I think I would have shaken too. The people were so intimidated, in fact, were told that they begged, they begged that God speak to them through Moses, not to them directly, for fear that they would die. And also, as we see here, on account of what God was ushering in. And what's more? The author tells us here that that Moses trembled with fear. We actually don't see that in the account in Exodus. That's not told to us there, but we have seen that before. As we're told that Moses quaked with fear when God spoke to him in the burning bush. So I have no trouble believing that. So as the author then reminds his readers, then and now, of the Old Testament and the circumstances in which that was ushered in, now against that backdrop, the backdrop of the Old Covenant, he now turns his attention to the New Covenant. And we see right from the very beginning that it's a whole new ballgame. It's a way different scenario. Verse 22, But you have come, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. At the, at the inauguration of the Old Covenant, there was, we were told that there was tens of thousands of angels. But now here it's thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here again, right off the bat, we see the superiority of this new covenant that God has ushered in for us now. That it has supplanted the old inferior covenant in so many significant ways. First of all, the author says, you are coming. Throughout the verse, those verses, but you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels. You have come to God. This is now personal. This isn't just the people. This isn't just they. It's not just them, but it is now you. Each one of you has now the ability to come to God in this new covenant. God's talking to you today, specifically. Not just FBC, not just Christians. He's talking to you specifically today. This new covenant is personal for God. It is between you and Him individually Furthermore, 
You're no longer coming to the earthly and the temporal, but rather to heaven itself. This new covenant ushered in the opportunity to draw to God, close to God, near to God in heaven. Not just in the law. Not in a temporary way. But now fully, completely, in an eternal way. Mount Zion and Jerusalem were understood by the people, the Jewish people, to be the dwelling place of God. Jerusalem was where David was told that God had selected the city in which he would have his presence. That he would reside. The temple was established there, which again was for the presence of God. It was a signal to the nation around that God was with them. But it was temporal. It was only a foreshadow. It was only an inkling of what was to come. Now, in this new covenant, God says, you don't draw to the temple. You draw near to me in heaven. There's a sense here of not fully yet, but already and completely. We're not there in heaven yet, but already and completely, we have the ability to draw near to God there. That we are full members of heaven. That our citizenship is secure there now, even though we aren't. This this covenant dwarfs the old covenant. And what's more, that it will be permanent there then. Never having to be renewed, never having to be replaced. The author continues, we come to this new covenant now through Christ, not Moses. Christ being the ultimate mediator. Moses was revered by the people. We've seen that. We've talked about that before. But now he's been eclipsed by Jesus himself, the Son of God. And because now we come to God through Jesus Christ, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. Not temporal. It's permanent. Sufficient. And therefore, then we come to this new covenant not out of fear, but with joy, recognizing that God, the judge of all, has received us through His Son. That we are no longer under His condemnation. That we are no longer under His judgment. But because of Jesus Christ, now we are fully accepted by Him and we may not fear His judgment anymore on our lives because of what Christ has done for us. We're called to a joyful assembly. It talks about the joyful assembly with all of these angels. We recognize even from chapter 2 that these angels are ministering spirits, ministering to God, but also, also to you and I, the heirs of salvation. And they minister to us with joy. This is a wonderful place. This new covenant calls us now to a heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly assemble where there is no more sorrow, no more pain, No more fear. 
only joy. With all this in mind then, the author presses forward once more to warn us. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may, may remain. As we've seen before, one more time, the author calls a spade a spade. And he says, to refuse to hear God on this, or to hear God on this and reject what he has to say, comes to us with peril. That comes at our peril. He says, he tells us, at some point, God is going to shake things back into order. Back into His order. And at that point, He will resolve completely this problem of sin. This sin that has corrupted us and creation as a whole. And at that point, all that will remain is what has been made righteous. Which includes you and I then as we come to Christ. But if we don't, we remain unrighteous. And at that point, all that is unrighteous will be separated from God for eternity. Now, I recognize this morning that as I read that, that some of you here, maybe some of you listening, are offended. You're offended by that. I can appreciate that. You look at that and you hear me talking this morning, you say, that's just fear-mongering. You're being manipulative. You're trying to coerce me into something. You're making me afraid in order to accomplish the decision in me that you want. You look at me and you say this morning, well now, Bainton, you're just being unduly harsh and ignorant. And I always think to myself, like, where do we come up with that? How come? I have to ask myself, why honestly would the writer put that in there? Like, what's in it for him? That, that is not gaining him anything. He's got, he's got nothing to gain from that. For that matter, why would God have him include it? God's got nothing to gain by that. This morning I can tell you for sure, I don't have anything to gain by that. The, the only reason that I can come up with, the only credible thought that I can come up with as to why this would be included by the writer in Scripture, left there by God, 
is if in fact it's true. And that our, our God, by His grace, wants you to know the deal. Wants you to know the facts this morning. This is, this is how it's going to shake down. So I'm going to tell you. And I appreciate the fact that's, that you're not going to be pleased about it. You're not going to be happy about it. You might even be offended by it. But if it's the facts, then it's the only loving thing to do. And God is love. And so he does. He tells us the deal. So the offense this morning is on our part. The offense comes from within me. Not from the writer of Hebrews. Not from God. They've done nothing wrong. The offense lies in how I receive it. And the fact is, is that this is the exact same question that we are facing now that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. The question is, is whether or not I'm going to trust God. Whether or not I believe that He is good. Whether I believe that He has my best interests at heart. Or whether I'm content and I'm satisfied thinking that I'm sufficient to be God myself. And that I can handle this on my own. It's the same question. It's the same question. So can I ask you this morning, have you come to this mountain of joy? Have you come to this new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, offered to you through the new covenant of Christ? From the outset of Hebrews, we've been seeing that the author has been writing to us for a decision, for a verdict, for a choice from you and I as to who this Jesus is. What are we going to do with him? From the very outset of the book, the author has been laying out his case for Christ. He lays out the fact that sin is a problem and that it has separated us from God. He points out that down through time, God has been working from the very outset of our sin to resolve that problem for us, that he hasn't left us in it. He hasn't just ignored us and left us abandoned but rather that He has been working ever since diligently to bring us back into fellowship with Him. Back into the fold. The writer points out that down through history, God has been laying for us a trail, a track that we can follow with very clear and certain terms that we can weigh out, that we can evaluate as to how he is going to resolve this problem one day in a man, in his servant, in the Messiah. The writer points out now that that day has come. That that one day of the Old Testament is now today for us. 
that Jesus has come, that He is here, that He is the answer to this problem of sin. He points out that there is no other way to God but but by Him. That this old covenant, this old system, whatever system you want to look at besides Christ is not sufficient. That it doesn't cut the mustard. It doesn't work. It's not enough. But in Jesus Christ and in His sacrifice, in His death and resurrection, then, then now the problem of sin has been addressed in a sufficient way by God. That He is happy with it. He's, he's, that He can accept. And therefore then, that as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, then that we can be saved. That our relationship with God can be restored. That our sins can be forgiven and that heaven can be ours. This morning, have you made that decision? Have you made that decision? And if you haven't, but you'd like to, then you can initiate your faith today by staking your claim of trust in Christ. At that point, you just say, God, I recognize that I am a sinner. And I recognize, I understand that now you've sent Christ to pay the penalty of that sin. And therefore, I am placing my trust in Him. And it is my desire to live out that faith for the rest of my life. If you haven't made that decision, if you'd like to make that decision, if you still can't quite figure it out, then please contact us. Call me. Call Gord. Call Kenton. Call Bruce. Call Kelsey. Call Avery. Call the church. Talk to a friend that you know that has made that decision. They'll help you. And then would you be so kind as to tell us, let us know. We'd love to come alongside you and help you. Give you some encouragement in that. I'm a little bit late again this morning. But I can't stop quite yet. Because for those of us that have made the decision then, the author continues. Verses 28 and 29 are for those of us that call ourselves, that claim faith in Christ. Call ourselves Christians. It says there, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If we had the time, to do a message on these verses. I wish we had that opportunity. As we place our faith in Jesus Christ, then that, and we are now called to live out our lives, to worship Him acceptably with reverence and awe because of who He is and what He has done and what He is now calling us to. I don't have time for that this morning. Let me simply say, 
That as we are called to live out our faith, as we are called to live for Him, worship Him, then that means that we obey Him. That we follow what He's laid out for us. Knowing that it's in our best interest. Obedience, someone said, is God's love language. We're called to be obedient. Our decision for Jesus Christ demands from us this morning a change in how we live. And frankly, we've dropped the ball. I've said it before, we've made our faith an addendum to our lives. But it is not a part of our lives. Our faith is to pervade all of our life. It has to affect everything. It affects the way that I have a relationship with my spouse. It affects the way that I do parenting with my kids. It affects how the, the way that I work in my job. It affects how I interact with people around me. It affects me from the moment I get up in the morning to the time I go to bed at night. But it hasn't for us. For a long time. We've been AWOL in our faith, living it out. We've kept it as a decision in our back pocket. We've got to get better, team. As we've been going through Hebrews, what is God calling you next in living out your faith for Him? In your worship of Him, in your obedience of Him, with reverence and awe. How are you doing in the one another's? In the things laid out for us in chapter 13. And other epistles for that matter as well. The rest is scripture. How are you doing in those one another's? Have you been baptized? God calls us in obedience to baptism. Have you been baptized? Have you followed him in that? I, I know you're scared. I understand it. You're nervous. You're intimidated about getting up in front of people. What have you? We've got a list of excuses a, a mile long. Suck it up, team. Engage with God in that. He will help you. Meet Him in that. He will get you through. How are you doing in tithing? Well, I'm loving on another. I'm encouraging one another, but don't talk to me about my checkbook. Now I'm offended again, twice in one sermon. God has a claim on your tithe this morning. How are we doing in verse 15 of chapter 13? Are you constantly in praise of God? And what's more, are you openly professing His name on your lips. Seems to me again we're not. Who are you with here this morning? Where do they stand with God today? Do you know? Do they, do they know where you stand with God today? Have you told them? Have you asked them? Listening at home? We need to profess Jesus Christ to a dying world around us in need. And we're not doing it. The author of Hebrews calls us to it this morning. Resolve with me today. 
before God with his help by his spirit that we would be better at living out our faith for them. For him. This is not going to be easy. We're broken and messed up people. We're not fully perfected yet by a long shot. We mess up, we stumble, we fall. We need to get up and keep going. On top of that, we have an adversary that is working against us. Behooves us to recognize that too. And as a matter of fact, in two weeks, Pastor Bruce is going to start us off in a series called Know Your Foe. And the fact that we have an adversary, Satan the devil, who's trying to overcome us, defeat us in this, sideline us in our faith, to defeat us, to defeat the rest of the world around us. He'll stop at nothing to take us out. And I'm not trying to just be grandiose in my talk in there. Stops at nothing. So this won't be simple. You haven't come to faith yet. If you haven't made that decision, don't think that you're coming to something that's going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. But what we can guarantee you is that it is worth it. God tells us that. That it won't be, won't be easy, it won't be simple, but it will be worth it. For what lies ahead of us as we make that statement of faith in Christ and as we live it out for Him that one day, one day, one day, that will pay dividends like you've never understood possibly before. And what's more, it even starts now. As we know Christ living in our life, as we know the living God in our lives, as real and tangible today. I've gone really long. Let me close this morning with the benediction from chapter 13 from the author there as he closes his book. Let's, let me close that and pray that over you this morning. Now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Family, friends, thank you being here this morning online in the house appreciate that look forward to seeing you next week at camp 9 30 don't miss out on that it's going to be awesome chance to get out there get camp ready for we trust a bunch of campers this summer that will get to hear about jesus christ until then have a great week we'll see you then